future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. It is Friday, October 28th, 2022. It is the Friday before Halloween. Ooh, and things are getting spooky for sure. Uh, welcome to Raging Chickens Out the Coop podcast. It's our Friday politics roundup. Yes, I'm back in the seat. Um, after it's been chaotic, I'm telling you, uh, I am just like, as the promo image for today's show said, I have just been slammed. Um, with work and family stuff and things like this, but whew, man, it is Kevin Mahoney here sitting with you, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. And each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics when we can find a moment or two to do so. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. You head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and become a patron today. You can also help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. Yes, indeed. And listen, if you're listening to it on the podcast, we've had some new uh, recent podcast subscribers. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. Um, we'd also, uh, you know, leave us a review. You know, you got your Apple Podcasts, you got your Google Podcasts, you got your podcatcher of all sorts, you got, you're on Spotify. Give us that five-star review. Um, let everybody know about what you like about the show. That helps other people find this show, right, and gets to amplify the work that we do here and all the amazing work that's happening in our communities and across the country. Also want to let you know you don't want to let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. While well, Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted pact to invest in organizing, support local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. And um, I'll have to tell you now, I'll tell you right now, that... Um, after the midterm elections is when uh, we are going to really put some concentrated effort there because uh, then we're going to have to be focusing on school board elections in the following year. Um, we've got a lot of work on the ground. There's amazing organizers who are out there um, and we're going to be able to put the donations that have already come in to work. Um, and that is going to be uh, all thanks to you, um, those of you out there who've been heading on over to ragingchicken.levelfield.net and contributed to our community pack. Well, on today's show, um, there's a lot going on, uh, but we're going to kind of focus in on a few things today. Um, as the midterms approach, news tends to get very narrow, um, but there's some big bombs that were dropped this week. Um, the United Nations Environmental Agency issued its emission gap report ahead of this year's COP27 climate summit, which is being held in Egypt this year. Uh, the report says that there's basically no credible pathway to 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming in place. All right, now that's the target that had been agreed upon in the Paris Agreement. 
Uh, the report says that the only way to limit the most catastrophic, catastrophic effects of climate change is a, quote, rapid transformation of societies. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. A rapid transformation of societies. Yep. Given current policies and commitments, the world is actually on track to reach a minimum of 2.8 degrees of warming by 20, by 2100, right? By the end of the century. Now, we have basically eight years now to cut our emissions by 50%. But instead, that same report shows that uh, by 2030, that was a little eight years, we are not on track at all to cut our emissions by 50%. We are actually on track to increase emissions by 10.6%. So, you know, that's that, that's the kind of thing, we'll talk a little bit more about just in the show, but that's the kind of thing that really stopped me in the tracks this week. I mean, not that it was surprising, I guess, um, because, you know, nobody's paying attention to climate change um, in terms of like the media, in terms of priorities and that kind of stuff. Um, I shouldn't say nobody, um, just in a little bit of that kind of mood today. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, and something that will help out that struggle, not, <laughs> yep. Good old Elon Musk has taken over Twitter finally. Yes, he has. Yep. On day one, he tweeted out the bird is freed and he marked the occasion by the firing several key executives at the company. Now, Musk says he's going to remove lifetime bans, and which will pave the way, of course, probably for the return of Donald Trump to the platform, the QAnon folks, you know, and uh, all their their crew. And, of course, the science-denying conspiracy theories uh, will all be able to kind of come back to the platform, potentially, if Musk has his kind of like, you know, unfettered kind of unconditional free speech uh, ideas. Now, he says he doesn't want Twitter to become a hellscape, we shall see. And this just in, uh, this doesn't bode well for uh, what we're going to be, uh, the kind of climate in this country, not the climate change, but actually more the political and social climate. Climate. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi's, Pelosi's husband, Paul, was attacked with a hammer in his home this morning. Yep. Yep. Now, there's not a lot of details that are out yet. This is a, literally just happened uh, a couple hours ago. There's a statement that was just released. Um Motivation's not quite clear, um, but we can begin to guess what's the context and what the uh, discursive environment was like that produced that kind of hatred that somebody will want to break into Nancy Pelosi's house, right, and go after her husband with a hammer. Whew. Here in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania candidates for Senate John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz took to the stage this week in their first and only debate ahead of the rapidly approaching midterm elections. The midterms are just over a week away. I can't believe it. Uh, and the polls are showing a virtual dead heat. Real Clear Politics has Fetterman ahead by just 0.3%, which is well within the margin of error, for sure. We'll talk a lot about that debate and what goes happen. And of course, it didn't take long for the National Republican leaders to take to the airways to mock Fetterman, who was still recovering from a stroke. Yep, Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel jumped on right-wing radio to joke that maybe between Biden and Fetterman, they could maybe get a sentence out. You know, two for one there. Make fun of the fact that uh, Fetterman had some halting speech because he's recovering from a stroke and uh, make fun of Joe Biden because, you know, he's lived with lifelong um, problems of stuttering. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Classy. 
This is just another example of how Republicans have no shame in weaponizing their discrimination and cruelty. And we'll talk more about that in some of the discussion around it. And Democrat Josh Shapiro is still holding on to a six-point lead in the race for PA governor against Christian Nationalist Republican Doug Mastriano. Um, that's a glimmer of um, hope. But, uh, you know, I have to say, real clear politics uh, average uh, still basically only gives uh, Shapiro 49% of that vote. Now, you know, you want to see if you're going to be ahead in the polls, you want to be cracking that 50%. Um, before then, if you're not b- above 50%, that means that there's a bunch of folks out there that are kind of uh, not telling pollsters about what, who they're going to vote for. The quote unquote undecideds um, who tend to lead one way or another. And uh, a lot of times happen to get influenced by what is getting reported on the media in the, kind of the week leading up to an election, as we know. Today's last call. Well, you know, the International Space Station had to dodge some Russian space junk this week. That's a little concerning. Uh, I just finished watching the, uh, I gave myself a little prize this week. Uh, last, last night I watched the last episode of um, House of Dragons. Uh, of course, the week before, I talked a little bit about this last week, finished up the um, Lord of the Rings, uh, Rings of Power series. Um, now I'm on in the market for more. Um, I've just got to say... Uh, there's something about, I'm telling you, I'll just say this now, there's something about the uh, uh, House of the Dragons and the whole Game of Thrones stuff that um, resonates at kind of an effective level for me in our current context. So I'll say a little bit more about that um, show. We'll see what else is on my mind for today's last call. Anyways, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern. Tune into his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook. Subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And if you haven't been listening, you got to catch up on his uh, Working Class Heroes tour that he's been uh, that he's been on. Um, you can go back, listen to uh, podcasts, uh, check out his uh, his YouTube's. Um, you know, he's been had some great interviews with folks across the country who are kind of working to rebuild. Um, a promise of an American multiracial, multicultural democracy that's good for the working class. I mean, how about that? Um, man, got to love that. And you've got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you're not already on that tip. You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast. Rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Yes, make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And for all you gamers out there, The Game In is a Quicker Town-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for RetroN64, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts on A's when they uh, get, or get discounts if they get A's in the report card. How about that? You can check them out. Um, you got to follow them on Twitter at the game in that's with two ends and if you got a question about a game look for something hard to get shoot them a message or drop them an email at the game in PA at gmail.com special shout out goes to Jonathan Mann who wrote our intro song there are no people in the future check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at at song of day man that's at song of day man on Twitter well, uh, I've got no announcement for uh, Out to Coop Live this coming Monday um, because it's Halloween and I have kids and we are going to be giving candy out and doing trick-or-treating stuff and all that fun stuff. Um, this may be the first year my son uh, doesn't go out trick-or-treating. Uh, last year he was kind of still like, uh, 
But, you know, he's kind of getting at that age where, you know, he might be helping us hand out candy this year. And, um, but my daughter's excited and go around with her friends, um, which is good. So anyways, we didn't have that. And um, I know this has been, there'll be two weeks in a row because last week uh, I was just getting back from being away for the weekend and um, we did not have a show then. So, uh, you know, it's, it's been a bit. Um, I have to tell you, you know, before I get started on the news and stuff for this week, I can say that it's just like, I re- I'm just exhausted right now. Um, and there, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, I mean, some of it is... Um, I don't know about you. Look, I'll just put it like this. I don't know about you, but um, I I might feel more exhausted this year in the wake of the pandemic than I have at points during the pandemic. Um, it's like that, uh, you know, that feeling when you you kind of you're you're all charged up your adrenaline's going for a period of time and then you kind of crash after it right um when you have a kind of moment um same kind of stuff when you're in the midst of stress i mean that's really what it's felt like for me i mean i'm not i know other people are different about this but it's um it's also feels like that at work um in my classes um it's every just think everything feels tough right now um and you know, it, it's funny. I, I, I knew that this year was going to be the first year going back, um, going back to work where, you know, I work at, you know, for those of you who might be tuning in for the first time, I work at Kutztown University. Um, and it was the first time it was going to be, you know, going back with kind of no mask mandate, although I wear a mask all the time. Um, um, for, and I'm, you know, I'm sitting in classrooms with, uh, I, I've had more students out of, out from COVID this year than, than I probably have. It, well, it rivals at least, um, any other point, um, during the pandemic, um, people sick, all sorts of issues. Um, and you know, I mean, I've, I've had my, all my boosters and I've got my, you know, my updated booster and things like this, but, um, you know, there's a couple things I want to do before the end of this year, and I don't feel like spending it with COVID. So, um, so I still wear my mask. But so, anyways, I was coming back, you know, this year, and I said, okay, you know, a lot, a lot has been done to destroy large sections of higher education, um, in particular the state system of higher education, and um, you know, overall the uh, the uh, morale, shall we say, is pretty low among faculty. Um, and this image just kind of captures it for me, um, about how, how I feel kind of what I felt going back this year. Right. Um, you know, I, because, you know, all the, all the, the only thing that the, you know, Pennsylvania state system, um, state system, um, management and administration does well is austerity. I mean, that's how they that's how they know what to do. They know how to cut things. They know how to kind of eliminate jobs. They know how to um, like try to force you to work more uh, for less um, to do unnecessary work when you should be devoted to something, all that kind of stuff. They know how to do austerity. And uh, so I'm sure that somewhere I received an email about this, but I just I just whatever. It was not on a priority list. I didn't remember it. So I go back to work this year and um my first day back, 
I go in and, uh, you know, they had to replace our computers this year. So we got new computers. Um, old ones were fine, but we got, got new computers. And um, so people have been in there working on it, whatever. Like, they had to go in and could check it out. And I go in and, like, my the floor of my uh, office is just filthy. I mean, there's, like, scraps of paper. There's, like... You know, it looks like maybe we're pulling out cables or something like this from computer stuff. There's like pieces, little pieces of plastic from like paper, like or plastic wrappings on things all on the floor. I look up by my window and I've got, you know, these little things. There's a little ledge there and I've got little knickknack, whatever, in my office. And it's just like covered with cobwebs. Right. There's like layers of dust everywhere. And so, I, you know, I realized like our offices were not cleaned the entire summer. You know? And like, why? It's because they cut their custodial staff, right? They told the custodial staff, just, you know, no. And so it's like, you get your office cleaned only, you know, when you request it, right? And it's like, so in order to have a decent environment in which to work, I need to kind of like take an extra effort to do this as opposed to something that was just normal, right? You know, that you kind of, you know, you clean the classrooms, you clean your offices, Right. But, you know, this is the way it works. It's like it's that it's the death by a thousand cuts. Right. I mean, it's like they take they take a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. Um, I still remember when there was an administrative assistant who worked uh, in the provost office, actually. And and we got along with her pretty well. And, uh, you know, it was it got to the point where they say, oh, yeah, we're going to cut, cut, cut. And so they made their all their administrative assistants who were administrative assistant. This is kind of like vice. You know, these are I say administrative assistants kind of like you know, not get the right picture. I mean, this is like a woman who just like ran the office, right? I mean, she was amazing. I mean, in terms of or her institutional knowledge and all this other kinds of stuff, she was like assistant to the provost, I guess, or something along those lines. Anyways, I remember one day she was in tears. Why? Because they cut, they told the custodians, nope, you're no longer, we're going to cut the custodial staff. And that means that all their assistants are going to have to go around and gather and take out the trash. Right. And so now after all this pressures and, and cuts and all this stuff, now she had to go out and take out the trash and she was crying about it. And she felt and she even said she I feel ridiculous crying about this. It's just like because it by itself is not a big deal. Right. It's just like it's just insult to injury little by little by little by little by little over and over. And over again. Anyways, that was kind of the lead up, you know, the lead up to the semester. And so, you know, I, I said, look, I'm just going to focus on my my teaching and my classes and everything like this and and which I've done. You know, I mean, not, there's not a lot left to give at this point. So I just felt exhausting. And, you know, I keep on having these conversations with people who are in similar places. And, um, yeah, it's just been exhausting. So anyways, um, that's just kind of a little window into kind of where things are kind of in my little head these, these days. And, you know, it's just like I'm trying to – I feel like I'm playing catch-up even though I'm more on top of things in my job than I am in a long time. But I just can't, you know – the energy's not there. So anyways, uh, it's a bad time to have that kind of feeling, especially ahead of, you know, these elections. I mean, there's so much at stake. Um, I'm, of course, you know, I'm also the judge of elections in my precinct. And, um, you know, I, I, I have to purposely have not been following all the kind of, uh, you know, the threat level increases and all this other kinds of stuff, because you keep on hearing about the intimidation, uh, the uh, poll workers are being intimidated and so on. Um, 
and I'm just going to hope, you know, this year that we're going to be able to go think fairly straightforward. I mean, there was a, uh, you know, I work with a, a great group of people who have been, you know, doing it, you know, for a long time. And their primary concern, just making sure people, you know, can, can vote. That's it. And they want to do their job well. They're like pleasant. They're kind of engaged. You know, they want to. They want to be in an inviting space, right? Because that that's who they were, you know, that's who they are. And so, and I hope that's going to, it's going to stay true. So um, on that score, uh, well, actually I'll wait, I'll wait on this one too. Um, Cause we had some interesting developments. Uh, something was posted by the Montgomery Township Dems uh, that I thought was interesting that I'll come back to. But the big stuff this week was the UN climate report. Um, and I say big stuff is like, you know, there's so much that's happening around elections and everything like this that, it, you know, how do we how do we find the time to focus on this stuff? I mean, like, OK, so here's here's some of the key stuff coming out of this report. So it's called the Emissions Gap Report 2022. Um, COP 27, of course, um, that is the, you know, the conference on um, for the, the, the basically international climate conference where they get together every year to try to come to agreements to, to you know, collectively work um, against climate change. And but it's everything is non-binding, you know what I mean? I mean, it's uh, it's non-binding. So um, you, you're, you're trying to cultivate this through goodwill. But anyways. So the Paris Climate Agreement that took place was, uh, you know, said, look, we are we need to keep global warming below one point five degrees Celsius. Right. Before then, there was initially they were going to be talking about a two point um, uh, two point two degrees of warming, have to keep it below that, at which point um, many of the smaller island nations or uh, are are at low sea level, you know, are, are they're have significant amounts of land mass that's basically at um, kind of near sea level. Uh, they pointed out that basically 2.0 degrees of warming is a death sentence for them. Like literally, when you look at the climate implications of two degrees of warming, that basically me that means, you know, a, a, a certain level of sea level rise right um that they're they're banking and saying yes okay we're, we're okay with this level of sea level rise at which point several of these island nations said that means my entire island our entire people our entire culture history our entire land will be underwater and gone and you know, to the credit of the pressure that, you know, the leaders and the representatives from those, from those nations kind of brought to that climate and some of the activism around that, they said, okay, okay, you know, maybe we're not okay with kind of like, you know, writing off whole cultures and peoples quite yet. So we better do 1.5 degrees of, of Celsius place, which will still be catastrophic, like for those, some of those nations, but there's some hope that there'll be some kind of time for survival. Right. So they agree 1.5 degrees um, in place. And this report, you know, the, the, the reports are increasingly um, alarmist. Right. I mean, they're increasingly at the point where they're like, this is this is not. We are in trouble, you know, for the longest time, I think the scientists, what they were trying to do is they're trying to present the facts and saying, OK, this is this could be potentially bad. But now they're actually you know, making a case that, look, there's this is really significant. So 
let me give you some of the kind of high points here. Um, so they have these things that are called nationally determined contributions, right? Um, and they made some at Glasgow 2026 or COP26 in Glasgow. They kind of made these kind of um, national determined contributions um, that were supposed to be have like degrees of cutting carbon emissions by 2030, right? Um, and they said that the progress on that has been woefully inadequate, right? So that... Uh, the nationally determined contributions, right, with the or the NDCs that were submitted um, since COP26 take only 0.5 gigatons of CO2 equivalent gases emissions or, or less than 1% off projected global emissions by 2030. And looking at all the new and updated NDCs submitted between January 1st, 2020 and the 23rd of September, 2022, the count uh, is 166 nations representing 91% of the greenhouse gas emissions up from 152 parties, which is good. Um, but the but they're not hitting this stuff. The lack of progress leaves the world on a path toward a temperature rise far above the Paris Agreement goal uh, of well below 2 degrees Celsius, preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius. Right, they're saying now that the policies currently in place, right, if that unless they're really significantly strengthened, is suggest about a minimum of a 2.8 degrees Celsius hike. Right, that means 2. Point, at 2.8 degrees, when you hit about 2.8 degrees, you upwards of three uh, three degrees Celsius, you know, you're basically saying there's going to be you know a significant portions of the uh, of the world that are going to be uninhabitable. You're talking about the drying out of um, of major areas that are no longer going to be able to produce foodstuffs. You're talking about, you know, places like Bangladesh, um, about a third of that country going underwater. Um, you're talking about, you know, the flooding of Manhattan and other coastal cities. Um, this is really, I mean, this is catastrophic, right? Not to mention what that does to the storms, right? I mean, this is just kind of your baseline stuff. If everything was just kind of like, you know, hunky-dory, everything, you know, you got you know, no longer able to grow food in big parts of the parts of the world. You're able to, kind of, you know, um, big cities and cultures are going underwater. Um, and that's assuming that everything's still. The minute you start throwing all that heat and all that energy up in the atmosphere, you're talking about catastrophic storms. So you have that and the kind of like, wildfires that we've seen the kind of hurricane seasons that we've seen and come getting even worse um they say the implementation of all the ndc's plus net zero commitments right for 2050 to get at zero those commitments made by an increasing number of countries point to a 1.8 degrees celsius increase so that's saying even with the the commitments and the promise just the promise to get to net zero by 2050. They said, however, this scenario is not credible based upon the discrepancy between current emissions, near-term NDC tar targets, and long-term net zero targets. Like, in other words, you made a promise, and on paper we can get there, but you're not doing what you need to do in order to get there. So, therefore, those words, those promises mean nothing. Right? You just look at what happened in this country. Right? I mean, we are still one of the largest emitters. Right. Have been historically. Right. In this country. Yes, we finally got the kind of like, you know, Inflation Reduction Act, which was named that because Joe Manchin needed it. Right. That had the first kind of significant climate legislation in this country's history. But that was woefully inadequate, to use their words. The Build Back Better bill that was originally proposed 
by Biden was significantly better. Right. Although if you you know read the American prospect and you look at some of the analysis of, of this, you know, of the Inflation Reduction Act, there's still quite good things. I don't want to poo-poo it. I don't want to suggest that it's it's completely ineffectual. There are some really important parts of it, and it will make a significant impact, but it's not enough. Right? It doesn't get us to the to where we're promising. Right? And that's just this country. But and it exacerbates, you know amplify that across the world nobody's doing it like that same report says we're talking about an increase to record admission levels an increase in admissions by 10 point what is it what did i say 10 point 10.5 percent by 2030 right there was supposed to be a reduction by 2030 and instead we're on track to have record record levels of admissions by 2030 I mean, I don't know about you, but does it feel like you're just living in constant gaslighting of like constantly having your head like, you know, stick being stuck into the sand and saying, just don't pay attention. Everything's going to be fine when it's not. It's not. What it says to get on track to meet the Paris Agreement goal, the world needs to reduce greenhouse gases by unprecedented levels over the next eight years to 2030. Right. So there's there's this hope, right, that we have to have that it's possible because it is possible. Right. That's the thing. Right. Is like the science is clear. Right. Science is clear. What's causing it? Science is clear about what we need to do to get off of it. The technology exists and is tested and has come significantly down in cost to the point where it rivals fossil fuels, if not cheaper. Right. So the technological thing has been taken off the table. So like 40 years ago, the capacity may not have been there. We're there now. The capacity exists. We know what to do. We know how to do it. The only thing that is sticking like, is the will, the political will, and the initiative, right? And so this is where this, you know, this, it comes right down to these midterm elections once again. Because the reason why the Build Back Better bill didn't pass, right, was because you've got these two freaking Democrats who are fossil fuel hungry and corporate hungry, right? They just want to kind of like, you know, constantly eat off the buffet of corporate largesse. That's what they want. And that's what they do. And then, of course, you've got a Democratic Party leadership who are so kind of wedded to norms that they won't get rid of the filibuster to pass some of this other stuff. So then they have to do this freaking dance with Republicans about... Oh, we're going to try to do this, which means water down climate because you got a party, the Republican Party as a whole is not buying into climate change, is not does not believe we need kind of like this kind of quick action. The only thing that's going to kind of get us to the point within the existing system as it is, the only thing that's going to get there is to get super majorities. 
and to get rid of these corporate Democrats that are in that are in the House and Senate, particularly the Senate. So it says unconditional and conditional NDCs, like again, nationally determined contributions, are estimated to reduce global emissions in 2030 by five and 10% respectively compared with emissions based on policies currently in place. To get on a least cost pathway to limiting global warming to, warming to two degrees Celsius and 1.5 degrees Celsius, these percentages must reach 30% and 45% respectively. Now, if you remember, we talked about this on the show when it happened, when they first, I want to say it was 2018, which was the dire warning report, right? Which that was the one where scientists began to flip and began to say, you know what? We can't just continue to give these scientific reports without really emphasizing how horrific things are getting and the fact that we are not going to get there. All right. So 2018, like we had, you know, I remember having this sign, like, you know, we have 10 years, right? We have 12 years or whatever like that to get there. We've wasted several years. Now, granted, COVID in a weird way helped with emissions in the sense that people weren't going out and weren't going to work and all this transportation was shut down. So emissions went way down. But of course, as we, we've talked about here, they've gone right back up after COVID. What has not changed, though, is the, the political will. There ha- I mean, we saw what we did, what happened in this country when we had to fight over, you know, just is the coronavirus real? And I am not, ho- I'll tell you, I am not hopeful when it comes to keeping things as they are, the system as a whole, keeping business as usual and kind of reaching any kind of livable future for the vast majority of people on this planet. And as I've said before, that sets up a scenario which, you know, again, there's there's this there's this idea um, that somehow if things if things get worse enough, right, if things get bad enough, then people will finally wake up and they will um, they will finally wake up. Right. I mean, they'll finally get to the point where like, oh, my God, yes, we're going to demand it from our politicians that we need to change. Right. The problem is, is that there's not enough time anymore. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the time is no longer there to respond. It's too late. Just look this up real quick. I always forget to. And, you know, there, there's a word for this, okay? And it's a, it's, it's a term that it was kind of like coined by um, by Cory Doctorow, right? And he's been on this show before. Um, he's, a, he's a fabulous writer, um, kind of tech activist, stuff like this. But, he, you know, he talks like this. It's called peak indifference. A peak indifference, it's a, it's a, uh, and he coined this back in 2016. And it's a political phenomenon when people who have denied an urgent problem begin to self-radicalize, not because of activists or public education, but because the problem has caught up with them personally. Right. So that idea is a peak indifference, that you can remain indifferent to a problem up until a point that you're forced to confront it because it's on your doorstep. 
right? He's he's kind of liking this because, you know, we think about peak indifference when it comes to smoking, right? Even if you've kind of like buy into like, you know, long histories of people denying that there's a connection between smoking and cancer, or you kind of like have convinced yourself in your head that like, well, you know what, you know, I know that there's people that live to 96 and 97 who smoked all their lives. So, you know, you know, maybe some people don't, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm one of the lucky ones, right? So you could do all that up until the point you have stage four lung cancer, right? Because stage four lung cancer, to quote him, this is an article he wrote in his on his Medium site, um, is uh, stage four lung cancer is, quote, convincing in a way that even the most persuasive talk with your family doctor can never be, right? Because it's right there. However, if at that point you self-radicalize Right. And decide that, holy crap, I got to stop smoking. I got to get healthy. I got to stop all this kind of stuff. It's too late for you. You have stage four cancer. And because it's so late. You might even decide in your head, well, I'm going to go anyway, so might as well enjoy myself on the way down. Right. So. The reason why this is important, right, is because there's a tendency sometimes, right, for those of us on the left, the broad left, I mean here, to have a certain um, faith, if you will, in information, in facts, in reality, <laughs> okay? And, but the faith part, there's the facts, there's the reality, the scientific data, all that kind of stuff, that's, that's the, the world. But the faith comes in as saying that those things by themselves will change, will cause change. So therefore, you know, the truth shall set you free, right? You're going to shine a light on something. You're going to expose it. Now, once it's exposed and people could see it as it is, then they're going to change their minds. If you present people with the facts, then they're going to be like, oh, okay. Now the fact they didn't have the facts, now they know they're no longer ignorant. And therefore, they're going to change. That does not happen by itself. There's that narrative, right? You know, the, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, right? Yes, but it doesn't bend on its own. People bend it. You have to make the argument. You have to do the organizing. You have to be in the streets. You have to kind of force it. Any change that has ever happened has happened because people force the change. There's always been this kind of, you know, discrepancy of disparity of power and wealth and things like this. It's only when people gather together and demand demand that change over a long period of time that for it to happen. And it takes time. Climate change is a perfect example of this around peak indifference. You just think about that boiling pot, right? You know, you got it. You got it. The kind of I don't. I'm not going to do the frog analogy. Don't worry. But I mean, if you got like, you know, you, you're cooking dinner, right? And you kind of you're you're you know, say you're making a stew, right? You're making a stew, right? And that stew takes a long time to heat up, right? Because you want to cook it slow. You want everything to be nice and tender afterwards, and it takes a long time. And at first, when you put that heat on, right? You know, you can touch the top of that stew and that stew is going to be cold, right? You're like, oh, you know, maybe the heat's not working, right? Or, you know, maybe it's not that big of a deal, right? Whatever. But you know that you apply the heat at low levels for long enough, it's going to heat up and it's going to produce that really good stew, right? 
But then say at one point you just you, you you're, you're cooking your stew and you realize maybe you had that heat up just a little too high, right? So you go to your stew and you're like, oh, and it's a little too high. Oh well, I guess you know what? I've stirred everything like this. Yeah, I could smell there's something burning a little bit like this. Well, I'm just gonna I'll just kind of shut off the heat. I'm gonna shut off the heat and we're just gonna get ready. You know, at that point, you can't take your hands and put it on the pot, <laughs> right? <laughs> you can't. Because it's still hot, right? You can't stick your hand in the stew at that point. It's too hot. And it's going to take a while to cool down. Even after you hit, you turn the heat on. Like if you ever make a roast, like in the oven, for example, right? You know that when you take the roast out and you read it right in a recipe, right? You take the roast out of the oven. You take the turkey out of the oven. You take whatever it is, you know, you take the, take the roast out of the oven and you put it on the counter and they'll tell you in recipe books, right? They'll tell you, they'll say, right? Recipe books, let me cookbooks. Um, they'll tell you in the recipe, right? That the meat, you take it out right at this one point and you let it rest and because the meat will continue to cook, while it's resting, right? Because the heat is still there. It takes a while for it to cool down. Now, I know, look, if you're listening to the show, I know you know this already, right? I know, please, you know. So, But it's like it's like one of these things, like how do we talk about this to people that can understand? It's like, you, this is not something we can just shut off the, you know, shut off the heat and then we're fine. We've already, we, we, I mean, I drive to work every day, right? I mean, as so many of us do, right? It's getting cold. My heat's going on. No, I haven't converted my house all to solar. No, I haven't I'm driving solely completely electric um, car that is fed from, you know, my solar panels on top of my house. And certainly the power plant down the street is certainly not getting all of its electricity and getting all of its energy from non-fossil fuel sources, right? So, Every day we're putting more stuff up in there. So we, we haven't even turned the heat off, right? We just kind of, eh, you know, a little bit. So I have a hybrid car now. Okay, so I did, you know, a fraction of a notch. Okay, I got like LED light bulbs in my house. Great. So I kind of, you know, track it down a tiny notch. And lots of people are doing that. And that's so important. That's absolutely true. But the big structure is still what it was. We're still pumping heat. We just turned the heat down a little bit. We haven't even shut it off. So it's going to continue to cook. We're going to continue to cook. And I look at this stuff and, you know, it's it's um, it's hard at times to to not get super pessimistic about it. Right. I mean, look at this part here. This is from, you know, again, this is uh, from the report. They said such massive cuts that they're talking about. Again, you're talking about. 30% to 45% um, cuts in emissions by 2030, right? Now, remember, originally they were talking about 50% cuts. That was the kind of hope. But now they say 30, 30 to 45% cuts, right? 30% cuts gets us to 2 degrees Celsius of warming. 45% cuts gets us closer to 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, right? And what they say is that such 
massive cuts require a large scale, rapid and systematic or systemic transformation across the globe. The report explores the required actions in the electricity, supply, industry, transport, building sectors and the food and financial systems that would back these changes. Even if the transformation fails to fully bridge the 2030s emissions gap, every fraction of a degree matters. Launching the transformation is necessary to move toward a carbon neutral future that will allow us to limit global warming and deliver other social and environmental benefits like clean air, green jobs, and universal, universal energy access. The transformation towards zero green um, greenhouse gas emissions and electricity supply, industry, transportation, and buildings is underway but needs to move faster. Food systems, which account for one-third of all emissions, can be reformed to deliver rapid and lasting cuts. The financial system must overcome internal and external constraints to become a critical enabler of transformation across all the sectors. And they have suggestions in here, right? I mean... They've got the kind of suggestions in the report. So again, it's not like we need to come up with, I no. these are things that we already know, <laughs> right? So there's only, and so the, the, the one side of it, which I, again, I'm sorry, I keep on going down these, these, these cul-de-sacs here, but this, the, the one part of it is, this is like why these midterms are so critical. And again, it's not just this, right? I mean, you think about this. You think about what just happened with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, right? You think about the assault on our electoral systems and our kind of democracy, right? You think about the kind of increasing kind of wealth disparity, right? And inequalities that are getting embedded in all of our, our, our kind of our structures. And we have a Supreme Court that is in, that is kind of is willing to let all this stuff go one is kind of further yeah i mean let's go i mean rising white supremacy but what else do you need right so all this stuff together makes these elections so fundamentally critical and pennsylvania here in pennsylvania we are like literally one of the linchpins the keystone state right one of the linchpins about whether we go towards autocracy whether we have a hope of staving off some of the worst of the climate future, whether we have any hope of restoring kind of kind of women's equal rights under this, like, like in this country. Whether we can kind of put an end or at least put a stake in white supremacy in rising white supremacy at the moment. I mean, right across the board, this the election in like, you know, it's like less than two weeks, right? It's a week and what? Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, a week and four days to election day. <laughs> and you look at these polls. We'll talk about in the second part of the show today, but you look at like the Senate polls, for example, between like Fetterman and, and Oz. It's baffling. The polls show that there's certainly people have not reached peak indifference about their bodily autonomy, about the, the future of this planet, about whether or not we exclude white supremacists and fascists from like, like acceptable culture. <laughs> we haven't hit there yet. I mean, if you look at the polls, if you, you have, you have, you have 50%. Less than 50% of people saying, shit, we got to do something. We got to do it fast. And they're like, no, I'm still going to vote for the guy who's the fascist, right? Nope. 
which brings me to the other side of this, right? Because you take something, you know, and I, we've talked about this on the show before. I, I really want to have somebody on, uh, you know, after this election, I, I really need to have somebody on and do this. You know, it's funny. We were going to have um, Danielle Otten was going to be on the show last fall, right? We were talking about when we can, um, when we could set it up. We were going to talk about climate stuff because it seemed like, okay, look. We got past these crazy school board elections. Now we need to shift and really kind of put some focus on on some climate stuff, like on this show. What I mean by we, right? And Danielle uh, Friel Otten, she's just been she's been doing great work in the and uh, in in, uh, in PA, um, uh, and she's kind of like you know takes point on a lot of the climate issues, right? Kind of runs a climate group and um, is just just fan, fantastic work, right? So, and then almost immediately. Right. We see the, you know, the rise of Christian nationalists, right? Rise of Doug Mastriano. We, we have the governor's race and it, it seems like everything's going off the rails real quickly. And and so here, you know, again, guilty right here. Right. I mean, on this show. We, we didn't prioritize climate. Right. Yeah, we talked about it quite frequently. Right. But because you're you're. What's the most pressing thing? I know I can't get any kind of climate solution if Doug Mastriano is governor of this state, this Commonwealth. Not governor, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, governor of the Commonwealth. Yeah, I can't, you know, if we have a Senate that is dominated by Republicans, we're not going to be able to pass any climate legislation. I mean, like, so it's like you're we're working to, like, prevent the fall <laughs> but because we're working so hard to prevent the fall we can't focus on what to do i mean it's like that kind of split mentality because look those of us on the left right who are invested in systematic change right we don't have the billionaires coming to knock on our doors to help us do that i mean i th i can't tell you i think about it daily on this show i think about daily in my life if like what I could do with a staff, if I could fund a staff, right, and I could do this full time, right? I look at what the the amazing work that they're doing with the Bucks County Beacon, but I also know that that is the result of the Bucks County Beacon is a lot of people stretching themselves to the limit, right, to take on more work in the hopes that this thing is going to be sustainable, right? And I imagine, imagine. If the Bucks County Beacon, right, this amazing kind of precious po progressive resource was able to actually employ a full-time staff and expand its newsroom, right, and do that kind of work that we need, imagine that, what we could do. But instead, we're, we're, we're constantly, constantly splitting. And again, look. This is nothing, this is this is not something new. This is something that social movements always struggle with. But I just, you know, it's like one of those things like, man, I wish. But anyways, that's kind of where we're at, you know? I mean, it's like, so we have to elect them. Because what happens if, the other side of that peak indifference thing, right? You know, I talked about that that metaphor of, of smoking, right? That Cory Doctorow uses. And... When that person, if a person gets to the point where they realize they have stage four cancer, right? And then that now they've been radicalized, but then they're like, look, there's nothing I can do now. They throw their hands up in the air, right? 
we know what that means. That means rapid death for that person. In the terms of climate change, we're talking about that means just kind of an exacerbation of the problems could get even worse, right? But if we look at the elections and the balance of power in a democracy, right, and we see that there's these these autocratic kind of kind of Christian nationalist tendencies that are out there, these right wing kind of you know white supremacist tendencies that are out there that are literally are are they're increasing their numbers right in legislatures both at the state level and the, the federal level. If we recognize that climate change is going to produce catastrophic results and those people are in power, those people are not going to be like self-radicalized and then realize like, oh my God, and become climate champions. Those people will be climate fascists. They're already lining up the people that matter, right? Are you white? Are you Christian? Are you patriarchal in nature? Right? Because you can be a woman and be patriarchal, right? Are you this kind of version? Are you the handmaid's tale future? And if you are, we will build a wall around you and we'll protect you and we will keep the others out. We will force the others outside the castle walls and we will take tithings from them to support us, but we will not let them in. And if they die, they die. Environmental fascism is a, is a real thing. I've mentioned this before, the, the, the Christchurch shooter down in uh, New Zealand, um, if you remember that, um, left behind a manifesto about this, anti-immigrant, racist, all this other stuff, but it was about climate futures and saying that you know, climate change means that we're going to have to secure our borders to keep people out because there's going to be Millions of people that are going to be forced from their homes and become climate refugees. And they, this guy was basically, we don't want them here. We want to keep New Zealand white, right? That kind of nationalism, that's kind of Christian nationalism stuff is so dangerous for that reason. But anyways. Hey, Kirsten, how you are? Yes, I'm feeling much better. Um uh, it was a combination of, uh, if you remember, let's say I didn't, uh, wasn't, we weren't here last week because I had this just massive headache. Um, and, and we were going away for the, we were going away for the weekend. Um, and I was like, I, I just can't, I, I got to sleep because uh, otherwise, you know, I, and I didn't know if I was getting sick and whatever like that, which is like this, all this weather changing stuff does it for me. But anyways, so anyways. That's that first one. So the other stuff is, you know, uh, relatively insignificant. I mean, you know, you all, you all heard that Elon Musk has taken over Twitter. We'll see what happens with that. Um, I know, I, I look, I'll, I'll be one of the first to admit that it, if Twitter is destroyed, right, and becomes a cesspool, right, I, I have little, I don't have a problem leaving it. You know, I mean, I just like. I'm not as kind of like invested in the platform as I know some other folks are um, just as, I mean, at a personal level, however, that's going to have a really significant impact upon how we actually organize, how we share information, uh, especially kind of within the kind of political cultures. And um, we're going to see what happens. Um, uh, you know, I'm not on the bandwagon. I was like, let's go and like immediately boycott Twitter. I like, 
look, chances are it's going to become like more and more of a cesspool. Chances are Donald Trump is going to get his account back. Chances are the moderation is going to suck and we're going to see the return to conspiracy theories and this kind of stuff. So, you know, that's the trajectory um, that's going on here. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens there. I mean, and it's really remarkable just to see how quickly Elon Musk uh, has turned into really this, uh, you know, the worst of them all. I mean, not that he was ever a great guy. I don't mean that. But he's really become an icon of the far right. Um, while he thinks of himself as someone who's saving humanity. So you've got this kind of like, you know, like God complex on top of it all, which is... Um, and as I mentioned earlier that, you know, Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked with a hammer this morning in his home, home invasion. So we're going to find out what that's all about in a little bit. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. Let's talk a little about what's happening on in Pennsylvania. Um, but for now, I want to remind you, you can help support this show by heading on over to patreon.com slash RC press. You become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. I mean, you think about it, it's like a price of a good beer, good coffee once a month. Um, you come in, you chip in, you help build this platform. You help us, uh, echo, or kind of, um, amplify the work of amazing activists on the ground. Um, and that's kind of what we do here. So anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. We'll be back right after this quick break. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1965. That was the day that the St. Louis Gateway Arch was completed in St. Louis. The project was the result of a nationwide design competition. The arch soars 630 feet above the ground and is the highest monument in the United States. The arch was made from 900 tons of stainless steel. It was meant to symbolize St. Louis's role as gateway to Western expansion. The groundbreaking ceremony for the project was held in 1959. Workers from multiple unions were involved in building the arch. 250 boilermakers from local 659 in Warren, Pennsylvania, built the arch sections. Iron workers completed the on-site assembly. Electricians and plumbers were involved in the construction as well. According to historian Clarence Lang, the construction of the arch also became a focus of local activists' frustration by the lack of integration in federally funded construction projects. In July of 1964, Percy Green, a black activist, and Richard Daly, a white activist, scaled up 125 feet of the unfinished arch. The 29-year-old Green was the chairman of the Employment Committee for the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. As Green and Daly perched on the arch, they shut down construction that day. Other protesters held a press conference below. They demanded that 10% of the work on the project be provided to African Americans. No black workers were hired as skilled craftsmen on the project. After four hours, the men climbed down and were arrested. The action brought media attention to the lack of black workers, not just at the St. Louis Arch, but at construction projects throughout the nation. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
Hey, welcome back. Welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, back with you here on our Friday Politics Roundup. Um, before we talk a little bit about the debates in Senate and stuff, I want to this, this came across Twitter. Uh, we're just talking about Twitter. Um, this was this was uh, tweeted out by Montgomery Township Dems, Dems, and it says, has anybody else seen these ridiculous Mastriano voter fraud door hangers showing up in their neighborhoods? Right. And they post a picture of this. And it's basically this little door hanger. And it says at the top, stop election fraud, vote in person later in the day is best, right? They give the date like Tuesday, um, November 8th, says later in the day is best, right? And this is by America first slash Montco first Republican candidate ballot, right? So this is the America first Montco first. That's who's putting this stuff out. They give you, they want you to vote for Doug Mastriano and Carrie Del Rosso. Um, and then for Senate, Mehmet, Mehmet Oz. And uh, for uh, PA Senate, um, the 12th District, uh, Rob Davies, right? But then it says, vote in person. Down below, it says, stop election fraud. Vote in person, November 8th, 2022. Vote as late in the day as possible. Bring and vote with... A black or blue pen. I'm sorry, the, the printout is a little blurry. Uh, with a black or blue pen, no Sharpies, or ask for a ballot marking device, right? And that's kind of um, for there. How to stop election fraud. And there were some questions back and forth between like, like, well, what's, what is this all about? This is kind of weird, right? I mean, is he kind of going to do this? You're talking about stop election fraud. You want, what's, what's happening? And I was, and there are people like, well, what, what, what are they trying to do? And this was my, my response. My reply, I said, look, it's to overload the system late in the day to give the appearance of issues at the polling place. And if news crews show up at the problem polling places and all the voters in line are Mastriano voters, they will in turn they will turn it into a conspiracy theory, right? People are like, oh yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. I really do think that's what that that kind of strategy is about, right? I mean, you just think about it, right? So you're encouraging. You're not encouraging everybody, right? You're not broadcasting this kind of um, to, you know, as part of your ad campaigns and things like this. You're going to and you're distributing these these door hangers um, to, to people that you think are going to be some of your core voters, right? Highly motivated voters, right? Um, and they're kind of who they're associated with. And you've already created a, a scenario, both from the you know, at the national to the local level, about this kind of this voter fraud narrative. And Doug Mastriano, of course, is one of the biggest proponents that there was, you know, he's an election denier, was kind of running the kind of, you know, election, quote unquote, election integrity, stuff like this. So his people are all motivated by the kind of um, the big lie and about election fraud and all this other stuff. So they're more receptive to this kind of message about voting fraud. But then it's kind of weird. You tell them to vote late in the day. Why would you let them? Why would you want them to vote late in the day? Right? Why not say vote as soon as you can to make sure your ballots count? No, they want you to vote late in the day. And, you know, when I put my kind of like political analyst hat on and like, you know, when I think about strategist kind of stuff, you know, if I were to flip it around and I ask myself that question, it's like, well, why? Well, we often see these news stories. Right. Um, especially in areas that have been subjected to voter suppression policies by the Republican Party. Right. Meaning primarily um, Democratic areas of voting, primarily people of color. Right. This is who it affects, whether it's Florida and Georgia or all those places where we see long lines at the end of the day. Right. And you see lots of kind of, say, black Americans lined up to vote. 
right? And it's like 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night because they were in line, right? They've been in line for hours and they're in line at the close of the polls. And the TV cameras come out and say, oh, look at this. You got this long line, right? You got this long line. You're going to interview people. They start talking about that experience and so on. Right. And then you say that and that's we know that's a direct result of those voter suppression policies. Right. That have cut the number of polling places that have um, tried to you know, cut the number of polling staff at particular places that makes it more onerous, particularly in poor areas, particularly in um, African-American areas and BIPOC areas like across the country. Right. We know that. So. You can see your political strategist on the right and some from Master Annals campaign. You look at that image and say, well, look, we can create that image. Right. We can pretend because this is what they do. Right. We can create a pretend version of that. Right. We know we don't have like the motivated base that's going to go there and stand in line. You go there at like three o'clock in the afternoon and stand in line for hours, right? Well, no, because they're not going to, most of our motivated voters aren't really going to run into that problem with the polls. So what we're going to do is we're going to force, we're going to create a crisis, right? We want them to go late, late in the day. Say, that, you know, the polls close. Well, we'll, you know, get in line 15 minutes before the polls close, half an hour before the polls close, right? And if you get enough people to buy into that logic because they're motivated, they think some, you know, conspiracy, you know, baby eating Democrats or something like to come up with this conspiracy about, you know, early voting or something go late in the poll. So then by that you have more people converge on the polls at the end of the day. And then a line starts. Right. And because the rest of us don't have those door hangers and haven't shown up for that, we just kind of, we vote and kind of, as we normally vote, some of us kind of like do mail-in votes. Some of us vote early in the day, the midday, whatever it might be. Right, so you have that kind of ready, ready. If you ever worked at a polling place, you know there's this kind of big up and down, big push in the morning. People are going before work, slowly kind of trickles up, picks up again around lunchtime, and trickles down a little bit like that, and then picks back up. Right, say once you start getting after school and after work, and then it dies dies down as the night goes on before before the end. Usually, now high turnout areas, you have a little more lines, something like this. But if you can force those folks to go to the end of the day, not kind of in that normal cycle that they would ordinarily, you're going to create problems at the polls right and if you get your media to go over there at those particular times or you encourage some of your activists to film this on their cameras and post it to social media you can create the illusion that there was a problem or there's some kind of conspiracy against the mastriana voters see how that works because suddenly you're standing like everyone they talk to, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm supporting, you know, Doug Mastriano. And like, I've been waiting in this line for a half an hour and the line has barely moved and something's going wrong. I told you they were going to steal the election. It's already written. The script is already there. What that door hanger is, is a door hanger is to get the casting members to show up at the right time. The script is written. The plan is there. The cameras will be in place because everybody's got, you know, everybody's got their own little little camera at some point right or, or right now so that's what happens emily says yeah look he's pretty much told us that he's not going to admit defeat yeah so you are mastriano is already out there saying he's not going to admit defeat that he's already setting the stage for this and then this is part of the plan and what, what's what's baffling to me 
is how effective they are, right? I mean, at doing this kind of nonsense. But, you know, again, they've got a, a really powerful infrastructure. They've got a really powerful infrastructure that supports this kind of narrative. And unlike the Democratic Party, unlike the broad left, right, we've got strategies and tactics and good practices and things like this, but we don't have that narrative, right? We don't have the story. And like, you know, like MSNBC is doing its best to try to kind of make every story that's out there, everything about Donald Trump. They want it. They want it to be so bad about, you know, we're, we're just going to, you know, it's this kind of idea of, of leadership that, you know, just the person at the top, if you take them out, then everything else is going to collapse. It's just not going to happen. Right. If you watch MSNBC, it's like you got to wait till like, you know, the last 15 minutes of any of their, any of their news shows before you can actually here's something else that's going on other than the minutia of every charge that's being brought forward to Trump. Now, look, I'm the last one in the world that's going to say that, you know, that shouldn't be covered, right? That guy should go to prison, right? That is important for American democracy. However, <laughs> right, there's a hell of a lot more going on in the world. Um, and there's a hell of a lot going on in the world in our own communities, right, that needs attention. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think, you know, the Trump narrative is, you know, it's motivation for a lot of folks um, that is out there. But it doesn't have the characteristic of narrative. It doesn't explain all the stuff that's going on. The right wing is really good about that. You know, I'm reading uh, um, uh, Anand Giridardas's book, um, new book called The Persuaders. Um, I'm going to be teaching it in a class um, that I'm that I'm offering next semester called Rhetoric, Democracy, Advocacy. And um, but uh, I'm actually going to go see him next week, too, as well. He's down in Philly. Um, but he's um, in this book. Right. Um, they talk about and they're interviewing a lot of activists or people who've done kind of social movement work for a long time. And uh, and they're all they all recognized for the folks that were on the progressive or on the left that like. There's been, you know, this lack of attention to the building capacity and building narrative. And I know that there's look, people in our communities now are talking about deep canvassing and all this other kinds of stuff, which is right on the money. Right. It's about this kind of like long term place to go. And this one, I, I, I want to forget, I, I don't want to forget, I'm forgetting offhand who said this. I want to say it was Alicia Garza that he interviewed, but I, I'm not sure if this is in that, that part or not. But w what, what uh, Anand Giridardas does in the book is basically says, look, he's, what the right does extraordinarily well is create homes for people, right? Kind of like feeling homes, places to go institutions where you feel welcome, right? That you feel affirmed, right? Now, look, they might be off the wall, crazy institutions, right? Borderline cults, right? But it's the same logic, right? The idea that people have come home to where they feel safe and they feel welcome, they feel seen. And part of the premise of the book is a lot of what has happened, in particular on the kind of the broad left, right? I mean, not just like the left wing, but kind of like even the center, like we spend more time going at kind of each other and kind of like pointing out our faults, right? Then we do actually looking to build capacity, right? And it's something, you know, again, I'll, you know, fully admit I've, you know, I've, I've always gone back and forth on this throughout the years myself, right? I mean, I feel like what I try to do often is I try to walk this line. Right. I try to walk this line between 
the, you know, this critique of the Democratic Party. Right. But I, I critique it because I want it to be better. And I think we can make it better. But then there's there's a group of folks like I saw this tweet the other day it says like, look, you know, some, you know, something that whatever Josh Shapiro said or whatever it might be or what Fetterman had said or something like this. And the person writes, ah, oh, yeah, I knew it. That's why I'm going to vote for the Green Party candidate. Right. So I'm just going to I'm just going to basically throw it all away. I'm not going to do the work of of building. I'm not going to stay with it and work for that change, which is an arduous project. I'm going to make myself feel better um, by kind of remaining ideologically pure or something like that. And it's just not the way social change happens. But anyways, I digress. So that's what that kind of stuff is. And I saw that door hanger. I'm like, man, they're at that level, right? Where they're kind of hanging out. You know, it looks like, I mean, you're not going to be able to probably see it here. Well, maybe you will if you're watching on YouTube. But it's like, it looks almost like a receipt, right? It's not even well done or anything like that. But that's what they're doing. They're at the level saying, here's what to do, right? And they're kind of going to carry out the script. So this became all that, you know, that kind of just admit for the week. So, but the big news for the week, right, which made national news and all this other kind of stuff was, of course, we had the um, the debate between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz, right? John Fetterman, of course, the Democratic candidate for Senate and Mehmet Oz, the Republican kind of usurper from New Jersey. Um, that And they're like, at, they're at dead heat in the polls. Now, of course, if you look at, you know, the debate as a, as a policy debate, right? Looking for ideas and facts and things like this. Um, you know, one of the things that you're going to go to immediately is like, well, Oz just lies, right? I mean, he just lies left and right. And it's obviously it's important to point out those lies as Fetterman had done and as people have commented on it afterwards and so on, right? But most people... I believe do not watch those debates for policy issues. They don't even, they're not even really looking for who won the argument per se. It's all about perception. I mean, Sean Kitchen used to say this on the, on this show all the time when he, when he and I were doing the show, it was like, you know, he'd say, look, like so much of politics and I, he'd put a different percentage on it all the time, but you know, certain percentage of, you know, large percentage of politics about theater. Right. And I do think that's true. And I would even say most people are not paying super attention to politics. <laughs> and what they're evaluating a debate on is like how these people made them feel. Right. And the story that comes out afterwards. And from my perspective, given who the Republican Party is right now, and they're just absolutely shameless in how they'll weaponize race, how the racism, how they'll weaponize, in this case, uh, ableism or kind of like, you know, they'll fully kind of be all in kind of making fun of disabled folks. You know, I mean, things like I mean, th they're all in on that. Right. They'll, they don't care. Right. Anyone who's not a white Christian nationalist or like is fair game for their kind of like, you know, their own disgust and mockery. But anyways, so I mean, going into that, I'm like, why on earth would you have a debate? Why would you have a debate? Because what is going to happen in that debate? Like Republicans were licking their chops over that debate because they knew that John Fetterman is going to go there and you, they knew his speech was going to be halting at times. They knew there were going to be signs that, you know, he's still recovering from his stroke. 
and they were going to either overtly or kind of more subtly going to go out and basically saying this guy is unfit for office. That was going to be their narrative going into this. That's all they wanted that debate for. That's it. And they didn't want it for the night of the debate, you understand, right? They wanted it for the clips that they could have afterwards, so the discussion they could have afterwards. And that's exactly what happened this week. As expected, Fetterman went in. There were times which he lost his words, right? They had these big TVs um, uh, kind of kind of uh, behind the moderators that were transcribing things in, in real time as best possible. But you know TV debates, they move like this. So sometimes the transcription took, a, you know, a couple seconds to catch up to it. And Fetterman is reading it. The camera is on him. It looks like he's kind of like lost in thought. Really, he's reading it. But the way the camera angle makes it look like, it looks like he's kind of lost in thought, trying to think of what words to say. And then he comes in, he kind of delivers something. Sometimes, especially towards the end of the debate, was a little bit more halting, which is everything you'd expect. Now, Fetterman has released all his records, right? His medical records to say, look, he's great. He's a perfect recovery. He got there in time. Did all this other kind of stuff. And he just, it's going to take some time to get back. And anyone who knows anybody who's had a stroke or any medical person who like you know deals with stroke victims will tell you these things right those are all facts that's all good but what the republican party was going to do was they were going to send people like their national committee chairwoman Ron, uh, ronna mcdaniel onto right-wing radio right and disparage him right she was on with hugh hewitt which is kind of you know he's uh you know nationally syndicated uh uh right-wing radio host uh out wisconsin i want to say um uh, but it's nationally syndicated i mean he's basically you know the uh kind of one of the contenders for the uh rush limbaugh throne and uh you know so uh i'll see if i get here okay so hugh hewitt um Right, uh, says in this thing is I don't want to underestimate what the triple toxicity politically of those three can do. And he's talking about um, Biden, Harris, and um, uh, Fetterman. Right, talking about the three of them. I says I hope there are cameras and microphones because you put those three together and they could say anything, Rana. And she says, "Well, maybe they can get a full sentence out." McDaniel replied. I'm reading here from the Washington Post. So McDaniel indicated that she agreed with Hewitt about the undesirability of campaigning with Biden and Harris, speculating that Fetterman drew the short straw. <coughs> right. And they said Fetterman. Um, they talked a little about the debate and I said, you know, and McCarthy comes on. Oh, this is I'm sorry. I'm mixing things up. Um He drew the short straw and she says, I think all the candidates got together and said, which one of us has to campaign with Biden? Fetterman drew the short straw, McDaniel said. She added, so Biden said, between the two of us, maybe we will be able to finish a full sentence. Ha, ha, ha. Right. The idea because of his halting sentences and Biden has a history of stammering. Right. So they're making fun of it, but they're planting the seed. And then during a television appearance on Thursday, I'm reading for the article again, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy suggested that Fetterman's performance should give voters pause. Quote, even those Democrats on CNN were embarrassed of who their nominee was and the capability of carrying out the job, McCarthy said. This is a big job in the Senate. McDaniel was not the first prominent Republican to mock someone with a disability. During the 2015 um, campaign appearance, of course, Donald Trump mimicked a reporter with congenital joint condition that limits movements of his arms. Right? <clears throat> this goes on and on. 
and that was just it. And you looked at the headlines. What were the headlines? Like New York Times the next day, the headlines were about, oh, still reeling from a stroke. Fetterman comes out. Those are going to be the headlines. That's what most people are going to see. I know people in my life, people I care a lot about, right? And I know all they read are headlines, and that's what they're going to see. That plants doubt. That plants uncertainty. I wish everybody would evaluate things by kind of like very careful analysis, but that's not how a large number of people do. Yeah. So I don't know why going in that you would have a debate. So what was the worst thing that would happen, right? If they have a debate or if you didn't have a debate, they would say like, Oh, you won't debate. Right. And they would have made claims about it, but you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm be too hard, but whatever. It was tough. I mean, especially when you're talking about neck and neck in the polls. I mean, could like discrimination and could hatred or could mockery have an impact? Yeah, it could on the margins, but that's all they need right now. You got, like I said, you got Fetterman out by only 0.3% um, in the kind of real clear politics polls. And that was polling that went up until the 26th. So I guess right after the debate. So we're going to say the next round of polling that comes out, we're going to see what if there's been any movement on that as a result of um, all this kind of right wing media that's been coming out um, in the wake of that debate. Good news, I guess, in part is that Josh Shapiro is still um, holding a six point lead over Mastriano, according to, again, the, the, the averages. But that's still very dangerously close to the margin of error and also. As I said, when you look at the real clear politics uh, combined um, uh, combined pollings, their averages, uh, he's still under 50%. He's still at 49%. So I feel a little bit more confident in this race. Um, but I, you know, anybody who thinks that Shapiro's got it in the bag, man, do not. We, I mean, seriously, I was talking to somebody just a couple days ago and uh, she was saying like, you know, haven't people learned? Did we learn nothing from the past, like from the Trump election and so on? You cannot take anything for granted. I'm like, yep. <laughs> You said it better than I did. So crazy. Uh, anyways, I'm going to close up with one quick thing. Um, so uh, I had couldn't I had, couldn't resist our today's last call. The International Space Station had to dodge some Russian space junk this week. Uh, just the idea that they're moving this kind of like huge structure kind of up and down to avoid this uh, garbage that we've littered our our uh, orbits with is just remarkable. Remarkable. Excuse me. Um, Crazy. I'm sorry. I'm just kind of I'm tired. It's been a long week. Like I said, uh, I've been slammed. Um, the, the good thing I would say is like, you know, I remember. OK, the last thing I'll say, I, I said I might come back to the house, the house of the dragons. And I and I, and I will just briefly, you know, I, I um, there's something that re- I watched. Like I said, I watched the, the closing episode. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but it's uh, it was good. It was heart wrenching in my mind. Uh something painful right and they did this really well in the first game of thrones uh in the in the first series where you have these moments where you know characters the result of what's just happened right like in the show and you think about that character, what's what what that what's happened to that character. You can understand fully the choices that they're making, even when you can see the results of those choices are potentially disastrous. It's a really 
I don't know. I find that the ability to create storylines that create that that allows you to see and feel that is remarkable. Um, and I felt that about the season finale. I just was like. And I remember feeling that at, at several different moments in the original Game of Thrones um, about that. So um, I should go back and say here, uh, Kirsten said uh, the ableism being displayed by the right is disgusting and really depressing uh, as a person who has disabilities. Uh, Kirsten, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, look, my, my sister is uh, mentally disabled, right? And uh, you know, I just saw her this past weekend, you know, and um, and... Uh, you know, I've grown, you know, I've grown up in, a, in in my family, right? You know, I've grown up seeing the kind of disdain that other people have for her and to see what her, the treatment of people have for her. And I see what these Republicans are doing right now. And, you know, I think here they're going after John Fetterman for having a stroke. And so that that's just like, you know, that's like, that's the lightweight league compared to what they uh, what they would think and do with my, my, my sister, you know, and, and, and people with disabilities in general. So I just like, uh, I do it. But, you know, here, here we are. I and mean, this is what I mean about why, how important this vote is, because, you know, how important these midterm elections are, because, you know, I, I think, you know, Kirsten, you're right to call this out, right? I mean, say, look, we call out the ableism 100%. I agree. Um, but the calling of it out doesn't get us where we need to be. You know what I mean? And I know you know what I mean. I mean, you know, it's like, it's like, it goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the show. You know, it's like, we have to call these things out and name them for what they are. But we also have to recognize, and, and again, I'm not saying this to you, Kirsten, who just you made that comment, right? But I'm saying, but we also have to recognize, I think, always in our organizing, and always the way we think about it is like naming it alone is not going to change it because the Republican Party has become a, a party that is enraptured with cruelty. And again, you know, I, I always want to remind myself of the good relationships I have with other people who are Republicans who do not believe this in their daily lives. But I also know the party is committed to this as a political strategy. Right? I mean, it's like that, you know, those kind of those moments. So if the party is committed to this and they're going to go out and do this is that they just have to be defeated. I mean, that's all how it goes. There's no other kind of way around it. I mean, it's like they are going to continue to do this and they don't care that we call them out unless they feel the pressure, unless they're voted out of office. And that's, I th you know, that's why, man, I, I pray, you know, I'm, I'm delivering yard signs later today. Um, um, and it's like one of the little things that I'm doing, you know, to kind of like contribute to kind of local stuff. Um, and, there's people that are out there knocking doors every day. Um, the people that are doing really amazing work. I mean, there's, 
amazing volunteers and staffers that are kind of working for local candidates, right? Um, wherever you are, kind of Pennsylvania, wherever you're listening, there, there's there's people out there doing incredible work who understand this stuff. Um, and, and we got to do what we can to support them. I mean, I just dropped another donation today, uh, a couple of them actually, but um, it, it just another, I mean, again, it's not, <laughs> it's, you know, me as an individual, is not going to make a huge difference. But it's something, you know, all of us got to have that that kind of mentality. We got to do what we can, right? Can't run ourselves into the ground, but we got to do what we can, right? Um, and that together, I think we can we can, can help. Uh, Kirsten also says, the way uh, Hot D <laughs> has been centered on the pain of women and uh, realistic depictions of reproductive traumas, refreshing change, um, from most media. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's, that's a, that, I, I do agree. I do agree. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so, yeah, so I, I think that what I was just saying to close out that thought on, uh, the house of dragons, I think that's, um, um, kind of a nice transition there. Um, I, I do think that, um, I, yeah, you put it you put it better than I did, I guess, uh, Kirsten. You know that, that about the pain of women, a realistic depiction of reproductive trauma, um, is it's refreshing and it's like it's like one of those moments of like being seen, right? And obviously, I'm not on the receiving end of that kind of trauma, but you can see how it's like being seen for connection, but it also acknowledges the pain which then brings the pain if you know what i mean because we live in a kind of this patriarchal system we live in this brutal system and that's where that kind of caretaking i think of each other is so important and it can be hard you know that can be hard but i also think like you know I know I can't tell you how many times I've had. I, I know I was going to close, but this, this is the other thing. I I don't can't tell you how many times I have had conversations with people. Just just conversation, look with my family members and so on, like this. And I remember this around Black Lives Matter, and I you know where there were kind of mass protests, and some of them turned to riots and things like this. And was like, well, that's wrong. You know, all the kind of judgment. I can't believe that's not the right way to do it. Blah blah blah. And I didn't know what to say. I mean, well, no, I knew what to say. I mean, but what I kept on saying to them is like, look, I don't know what to tell you other than if if I was, I said, I have a window into some kind of pain and trauma in my life, but nothing at the scale that kind of, you know, people of color in this country, BIPOC folks in this country, none of, not, nowhere near what that systematic daily oppression and violence looks like, you know, feels like. But I have enough of a window into it, maybe, I don't know, to say that, like, would I burn stuff? I'd probably burn stuff, you know? In that kind of moment of outrage, of of horror, of trauma, I'm seeing people, even the people that were, you know, 
lighting things on fire. And again, I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's a, what's a, a positive political strategy. What I'm saying is that I get it. I understand why somebody would do that. I get it. And, you know, it's like language, you know, was it, you know, riot, you know, is the language of the unheard, right? You know that one, right? And I guess that's kind of what I mean by what the Game of Thrones was doing, right? You know, when Martin Luther King said that, I'm sorry, she said that, when Martin Luther King said that, like, a riot is a language of the unheard, right? It's, it's, it's not a condoning of it. It's a recognition of what's at stake, right? And I think what happens in the House of Dragon, right, um, much more so than, um, than the, uh, the Game of Thrones, although Game of Thrones had some of it too as well, but the House of Dragon in particular, is that, Given what happens, you can understand the response, right? Not for all the characters, let me be clear, um, particularly the women characters, right? In the same way that, like, Martin Luther King said, the riot is a language of the unheard. You know, it's like you can only take so much, and what do you expect? So... I think it's just like, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like that kind of moment of reflection. So I, I do, you know, like there's going to be all sorts of, you know, I mean, people could have all the different takes on the different shows and things like this. But that's why I I personally, at least, you know, I'm really drawn to the uh, House of Dragon. Right. Um, and why I, I'm just like. uh the actors are just amazing. Um, the the, the storyline is just so well, and it's so well written to get at those kind of really complex emotional moments. Um, yeah, I'll close it at that. Anyways, I'm just I'm still really reflecting. Like I said, I just watched the the the, the last um, or the uh, the finale last night, and it was just like it just got me. I wanted to get up this morning and watch more. You know, that's that kind of thing. I, w- I want to know what happened next, so it's great. Um, Emily says, my favorite is the elder Targaryen women, uh, woman. Oh yes, yes, yes. She is awesome. And, and her role in this last one, the last two episodes really was just kind of like incredible. I'm, I'm absolutely horrendous when it comes to names. I, I, it'll take me like a year or more to like, remember everybody's name so I can refer to them by name. Um, um, you're talking about the one from the Driftwood, right? I mean, that's the, what I assume is that she's freaking amazing. Um, I was literally saying that out loud to myself last night afterwards. I watched the, uh, yeah, uh, kind of Rhaenerys, uh, Arrhenus, and Melis. Is that it? Um, was it? Yes, yes. So anyways, but uh, she's amazing. She's, I was saying out loud, I watched the kind of like the afterward. I usually don't do that because um, I just, I want to just watch the show initially. I watched the afterward where they had the actors kind of discussing the roles and stuff. And like uh, when she came on, I was like, she's amazing. I mean, like, she's awesome. Like just incredible. Anyways, I have to shut up now. I've got to get, uh, 
I got stuff to do. Uh, I actually got to take my dog to the vet. So uh, I got to got to do that this morning in addition to uh, more grading, which is that's crazy. All right, um, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Thank you especially for the discussion um, today. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Kirsten, for dropping by. Thank you, everybody else who's kind of uh, out there listening. Thank you all on our podcast who are doing it. And thank you to all our patrons who make this possible. Um, it's, uh, you know, on those days, especially when I kind of throw up my hands sometimes, like, you know, I know this is all this worth it. I'm spending all this time. And it's like, is that I'm kind of reminded of the folks that are, you know, what we try to do here at Raging Chicken is to try to make this a community space, right? That's community supported, that is kind of connected to the folks here that's going to amplify the work that's happening in our communities. So, um, there will not be a show on Monday night because it's uh, Halloween. I will be back next Friday. What I'm going to try to put together for uh, November 7th, the night, the election night, is kind of what we did last year. We had a kind of an election night um, or pre-election kind of roundtable, uh, Bucks County roundtable. So uh, I think we're going to try to do something like that again, but I'll keep you posted. Um, I just got to look at a couple things that are happening in my schedule and make sure that we can make it happen. So anyways, thank you all for your support. Thank you for your time. And as always uh, have a fantastic weekend and keep up the fight. Uh, this is yes. Once again, this is Kevin Mahoney creator and founder of raging chicken. We'll be back with you next week. Uh, we'll see you in the streets. Uh, we'll see you on the organizing tips. Maybe I'll be dropping a sign off to your front lawn later on today. We shall see. All right, everybody. Have a good one. We're out of here. See ya.